gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the hope that we have, the hope that you have given us, the hope that Jesus has assured us is absolute, and that he will bring about for our benefit, for our destiny, for our delight for eternity. We thank you for your word that speaks to us. And we pray that as we open the scriptures tonight and listen to Jesus, that we would hear his voice, that our faith would be built up and strengthened, that the Holy Spirit would enable us to see with clarity those things that are beyond the physical realm, and that you would give us hearts that can't wait for that day when we are with you. We commit this time to your purposes and to your work within us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles again this evening to John chapter 14. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 comprise this final evening that Jesus is spending with his disciples. And throughout this evening, Jesus is demonstrating and teaching what they need to know and understand when they will step into the place of ministry and leadership after his ascension. He is preparing them for what is ahead after this evening. He is preparing them for what is ahead after he is gone. Chapter 14, Jesus emphasizes the Father. So we've called this chapter Jesus's Father Theology. In our last study, we looked at his opening line in this chapter, do not let your hearts be troubled. The hearts of the disciples were troubled because of what had taken place what had been said in the previous hour after Jesus had washed their feet, and shared the meal with them, and spoke to them of what was ahead. And now tonight we come to the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus will speak about my father's home. Let's look at these four opening verses, our context of study. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Let's look at what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. First of all, after counseling them not to let their hearts be unduly troubled, he said to them, you believe in God, Believe also in me. In John chapter 5, we read where Jesus said, 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Remember that the word believe or belief is the key word in the Gospel of John. We find it in the prologue. We find it at the conclusion of all that John has written. It appears more than 99 times. And it emphasizes belief in Jesus as, or in correlation to, believing to God or believing in God. That is, if we believe in Jesus, we believe in God. Look at the words of these verses from John chapter 5, and we see this principle of emphasizing belief in Jesus as believing in God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And so to hear the words of Jesus is to be able to believe the Father. To believe in the Father, we have to accept the Son. We have to believe in him. There is considerable difference of opinion about the grammatical intention of the words of Jesus here when he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Is he speaking in the indicative or the imperative mood? For example, you already believe in God. That would be indicative. Now believe in me, imperative, injunction, a command. Some scholars believe that one is imperative, one is indicative. Both are indicative. Both are imperative. Regardless, what is apparent is that Jesus has spoken both another powerful Christological statement plus an emphatic belief statement. Now, we want to recognize both of those components and then look at them because they are very significant. First, this Christological statement. It is important because it establishes a premise for what follows. On numerous occasions, the disciples have heard Jesus declare his equality and exclusive position with the Father. We've also seen how the implications of everything that Jesus said in those moments were also very obvious to his detractors. For example, we read in John chapter 5, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so when Jesus declared that he was the son of God, that God was his father, that was an equality statement. 
and the Jews recognized it as such. Again, this principle of believing in Jesus correlates to believing in God. From John chapter 6 and verse 40, For it is my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Or verse 45, Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. You see that correlation. To believe in Jesus correlates to believing in God. To hear what God is saying will bring you to Jesus and truly bring you to belief in him. They are inseparable. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me, speaking of his sheep, is greater than them all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So once again, when Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Because of this principle of correlation, believing in one also means that you believe in the other. Hearing Jesus also means that you've heard the Father. Because of that principle of correlation, whatever Jesus is saying here is not simply on the basis of his authority or his word, but it is also on the basis of the Father's. They are one. Once again, as we read these words of Jesus, he is asserting his relationship with the Father. He is the Father's sent one, the only authorized representative. Jesus has not come with any personal agenda. He has come only to say and to do what represents the Father's will. And he speaks to this in one place among many, in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Aren't those beautiful words? Jesus doesn't speak on his own. He speaks what the Father commanded him to say. He has been sent by the Father to speak what the Father wants known by people. And Jesus knows that the Father's command leads to eternal life. And that's what he wants to speak so that people are led to eternal life. 
Now, once again, this Christological statement that Jesus has made lays the foundation. It is the premise for what Jesus is going to say in a few moments. What he will say next will reveal the ultimate outcome of the Father's will and the mission of Jesus in bringing grace and truth, something that John emphasized in his prologue in verse 16, that from the word made flesh came grace and truth. Jesus has made these belief statements in response to the troubled hearts of the disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In essence, Jesus is graciously urging his distressed followers. Don't dwell on what is troubling your hearts. Believe, believe us, please. He really wants them to trust the unseen father and the Father's Son representative, and to have their hearts and hopes fixed on the end result of the Father and the Son's plans for those who believe in the one that the Father has sent. I believe Jesus would want to say to each of us tonight, don't dwell on what is troubling your hearts. Believe. Believe us, please. Now, I have used the word there in reference to the Father and the Son. And I put it in small caps in the same way that Lord is rendered in the Old Testament for Yahweh. And so I will be using it in this way as I refer to them together or us if Jesus were talking. The Father and the Son, because to see one is to see the other, to hear one is to hear the other. They are in correlation together on this mission. Jesus is revealing the Father's heart, carrying out the Father's will, because the Father wants people to believe and have eternal life. Jesus follows this statement, you believe in God, believe also in me, by declaring, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? In 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 27, we read these words of Solomon as he is praying. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. Now that is a statement that Solomon makes frequently throughout this chapter, throughout the course of his prayer. As he lays out different scenarios where the people of God will need the Lord to intervene and to help. He will follow it by saying, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. 
heaven is God's dwelling place. John ended his prologue with this statement. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him know it. If you and I go back to the beginning of chapter 13, we are reminded that this night began with Jesus's awareness that he had come from the Father and that he was returning to the Father. And though God is a spirit who is unseen, God is not abstract. He is real. His residence is real. Jesus had come from a real place, heaven, to reveal the Father and his love. He was returning to this real place, my Father's house. My Father's house has many rooms. Or is it mansion? Some of you will be familiar with that gospel song that declares, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. So what is it? Rooms or mansions? Well, the Greek word is monet, and it means residence, the act of residing or the place where one would reside. It comes from the verb mino, which means to stay, to stay in a given place, a state, a relation, or expectancy. And Jesus will use that understanding in each of those ways. For example, he will tell his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high. He will tell them to stay awake as he goes to pray, to watch with him in intercession. In the next chapter, he is going to tell them to stay in relation. You need to abide in me and allow me to abide in you. He will speak about staying in expectancy. That his followers need to watch and be ready for his return. The word mansion is used in the King James. And it's based on the word mansions, which was used in the Latin Vulgate translation. Jerome translated the New Testament into Latin. Tyndale used that as his basis for his translation into Old English. And then the translators of the King James used both the Latin Vulgate and Tyndale's. And so they used the word mansions. Jesus had come from his father's house, and he's returning to reside with him as they, the father and the son, have eternally done. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Now, Jesus is not speaking here with the intention of provoking an anticipation of lavish reward. I can't wait until I have my mansion in heaven. Jesus is not returning to take up an opulent lifestyle in heaven. Rather, these words, in my Father's house are many rooms, are meant to reveal the scope of the Father's love and the Son's work. How so? Look at the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Now, in these verses, we see what we have just said the scope of the Father's love, and the Son's work. You and I can circle and underline as we go through this passage every spiritual blessing in Christ. God chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He did it all through Christ. We have redemption through his blood. We are adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ. We are made holy and blameless in his sight through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the love of the Father and the work of the Son. And the two go hand in hand. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Again, it reveals to us the scope of the Father's love and the work of the Son. And so the emphasis that we should see here is the accommodating immensity of their work. The accommodating immensity of their work. In my Father's house are many rooms. The Father loved the world and sent his Son, that whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. John 3.16, whoever. The coming work of the Son just hours from now when he is lifted up from the earth will be so effective that, quote, 
everyone who believes in him, unquote, John 3.15, will be enabled to share in the eternal life that the Son has always shared with the Father. So take note of those two words, whoever and everyone. Now, you might invite someone to come and stay at your house, but you could not invite everyone to come and stay at your house. Even if you wanted to invite all of your relatives, maybe even your immediate relatives, your brothers, your sisters, their children and grandchildren, you wouldn't have enough room for everyone to have their own room. People would be doubling up and sleeping in the living room. There would be people everywhere. But Jesus is telling us that his father's house is immensely accommodating in accordance with the work that the son is going to do that will make available eternal life, not only to whoever, but to everyone who would believe. And we understand that the Father wants everyone, meaning the whole world, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants his disciples to be reassured by and focused on the ultimate outcome of the collaborative work of the Father and the Son. The atoning work of Jesus will be so extensively sufficient that no matter how many people believe, they will be justified and will possess eternal life. Think of it for a moment. Satisfying the judgment of God against sin. Paying the debt that of the soul that sins will surely die. The death of Jesus is so sufficient that it can forgive the sins of everyone who ever has and ever will live. And not only that, but to come out of that payment process with infinite righteousness that can justify everyone who believes. Do you understand what is being said here? Is your mind meditating upon it and endeavoring to grasp it? God's law demands that everyone who sins must pay for their sin through their death. And yet Jesus, with one payment, the payment of his infinitely righteous life can pay for all the sins of humanity who have ever lived throughout history. And for whoever believes, no matter how many millions or billions that number might be, every one of them is justified and made righteous 
just as if they had never sinned in the sight of the Father. That is the atoning work of the Son. Now, the love of the Father is so immense that he sent his Son to make it possible for as many as believe, even if it were the whole world, to be his children and to share the home that he shares with his one and only son. So there are enough rooms in the father's house for everyone who believes. There is a place for everyone who is justified. There is an immense accommodation in this salvation. Everyone can find their debt of sin paid, find their sins forgiven, and find themselves made holy in the sight of God. Remember that the word of God says that without holiness, no one shall see God. We can't go to the Father's house unless we are made holy. And yet the work of Jesus Christ is so immensely accommodating that whoever believes is made righteous and made holy and blameless in the sight of God, and therefore can expect that the Father has a room for them, a place of their very own, just like we have rooms for our children in our home. He has a room for everyone to share in the life and the home that he shares with his son. In the previous edition of the NIV, it reads, if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. In the newest edition of the NIV, it's set in a question. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? With these words, Jesus gives his disciples another reason to believe and to trust, as well as another emphasis of the seamlessness that exists between him and the Father. It is so beautiful to contemplate this oneness, this correlation, this collaborative work that defines the Father and the Son. Jesus is returning home where he will share in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began something that Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 5. He is returning to a place that has always existed, to be with the one who sent him to reveal his father's heart and love. And he is going to prepare the way that whosoever can come to the father I am going to prepare a place for you. Years later, as he is on the Isle of Patmos and taken by the Spirit 
through an open door into heaven. As he views the future and records it, the Apostle John will see in heaven the lamb looking as if it had been slain. And will hear the uncountable multitude declaring that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. This Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Chapter 7 verse 10. Chapter 5 and verse 6. What John sees there is the fruit and the outcome of the Father's love and the Son's sacrifice. Millions, millions and hundreds of millions who are now at home with the Father and with his Son. John sees it having been fulfilled. And then Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Remember the words of David as he ended Psalm 23. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Note again what Jesus says for the twin purposes of reassurance and revelation to his disciples. He wants to reassure them because their hearts are, are troubled. But he also wants to give them revelation and understanding into the work that he and the Father are accomplishing for them. And it is a what, where, why, and how construction. First of all, the what. I am going. The where. I am going there. I am going home. I am going to heaven. Why? I am going there, home, heaven, to prepare a place for you. And the how. I will come back and take you home to my father's house to be with me. And so we have yet another reason that Jesus is presenting to us that we should believe and trust. I won't go without coming back. The Apostle Paul wrote to reassure the believers at Thessalonica. Among them were a number who had died. And the Apostle Paul had taught them that Jesus Christ was coming back and that they were to be living in anticipation of his return. But some among them had died without Jesus returning. And they were confused about what was happening. And so he wrote to them to reassure them and to give them clarity. He wanted them to understand what was taking place. He wanted them to sense hope. And so he said to them, we grieve 
but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. In other words, we grieve, yes, but we grieve with hope. And then he said, according to the Lord's word, we tell you. And we will read in just a moment what he told them. Well, when did Jesus give this word? Some commentators believe that what Paul is going to say to the Thessalonians, Jesus had shared this with him when he encountered Saul of Tarsus or when he revealed himself to Saul while he was in Arabia. But I believe that Paul is basing these words on what Jesus is saying to his disciples this night. And we know that the Gospels do not, believe, do not record everything that Jesus said, but what is necessary for us to believe and have eternal life, something that John emphasizes at the end of his Gospel. And so I believe that what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, I am going to prepare a place for you, a room for you in my Father's home. If I go, I am going to come back for you. And I believe that that's the Lord's word that is the basis for what the Apostle Paul is sharing with the Thessalonian believers. So let, let's look at what he said to them. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What wonderful words. When we pair them with what Jesus has said, it gives us such revelation, such understanding of the plans of Jesus and the Father. Of the love of God and the work of the Son. Of the will of the Father that everyone who believes in the Son would have eternal life. Why does God want us to have eternal life? It is so that we will not perish. But it is also by the word of Jesus, so that we will share in eternal life with him and the Father. We're not going to just live eternally somewhere. We are going to live eternally with Jesus and with the Father in the Father's house. When someone dies, they go home. The Apostle Paul said in the sentence before, he said, according to the Lord's word, 
he told the Thessalonians that Jesus would bring with him those who had fallen asleep. He will say to the Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our bodies go into the ground, but our souls go to be with the Lord. It is our destiny. And the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words of the Lord's return, these words that give us hope because they tell us that we shall be with the Lord forever. This is our ultimate destiny and our hope. Our equilibrium in our often troubled hearts. Our clarity in a world that tugs us toward its, towards its temporary worthlessness. Our comfort and our joy when we lose someone dear and indispensable. Heaven is home. Years ago, a Christian artist wrote a song. If we are all, all going to heaven, why isn't anyone in a hurry to get there? Well, there are many Christians who believe that they have eternal life and they're going to heaven, but they don't want to die. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is difficult to lose a loved one, and this is one of those things that was troubling the disciples that night. They had, as we would say today, separation anxiety because Jesus said, I am only going to be with you a little longer, and where I am going, you cannot come. And we don't want to lose someone. We want to keep them with us. But in feel, feeling that way, we are also wanting to keep them from going home. Heaven is home. As long as we are in this body, we are not home. As long as we are in this world, we are subject to its temptations, its deception, its lure that we invest our lives in things that are worthless. As long as we are in this life, we are subject to all the frailties that our human nature experiences. One of the most notable viewings that I was ever at was for my uncle Kenny. He was a World War II veteran, his four children, a couple of which are in the ministry, grandchildren that are in the ministry. And that is viewing something that was so notable to me was that his children were all happy. And when I spoke to one of them, they expressed their joy because their dad 
was now in heaven and he was home. When their mother died a number of years later, just a few years ago, it was the same. Joy because their mother, my Aunt Catherine, loved Jesus and she was now home with Jesus. You know, the most wonderful thing that you and I could ever desire is for one another to be home with Jesus. Yes, it would grieve us because we would lose someone that is dear to us, but that person would be home. Almost every night when I talked to my dad, and we talked almost every evening, he would say to me, I just want to lay down tonight and go to sleep and wake up in heaven. And although in my heart, I did not want my dad to not be here. Yet at the same time, I could not say no in the spirit to his desire. He didn't belong to me, even though he was my dad. Jesus had bought him with his blood. He belonged to Jesus. He lived to glorify Jesus. He lived to serve the will of Jesus. And he wanted more than anything else to see the face of his Savior. He wanted to be home. So how do you and I respond to what Jesus has said here? To this fact that heaven is home. We need to set our hearts on things above where Jesus is right now. Colossians 3.1, at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is home. He is preparing a place so that we can be home with him. So let's not set our hearts on things of the here and now. Let's set our hearts on heaven. We need to rejoice when those you love get to go home. We need to count present difficulties as opportunities that prepare us for going home. The Apostle Paul speaks to, the, speaks to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Nothing better. There is nothing better than being home. You and I might travel and we might be welcomed by others into their homes and they might give us the best of their accommodations. We might travel and be able to stay in the cleanest, most welcoming and most comfortable of hotels. But nothing matches the feeling of returning back to our own address, turning our key in the lock and stepping in to the comfort of our own home. And believe Jesus 
nothing beats being home with him and his father. He is preparing a place for that very reason. He died for that very purpose. He came to do so because that was the father's heart, the father's love, and the father's will. And that is your ultimate destiny. That is our ultimate hope. With all of our hearts, may we look forward to being home with Jesus and the Father. Amen. Our loving Heavenly Father, you long so much for us to be with you that you chose us even before the creation of the world. We cannot imagine such a thing. You adopted us through the work of Jesus Christ. You forgave us. You redeemed us. You've justified us. You've made us holy. You've done everything that's necessary to give us eternal life that we might be with you forever and ever. Thank you for this wonderful hope that we have. And so may we live temporarily. Help us to detach our hearts from this world. This world is not my home. Heaven is home. May we long to see your face. And may we live each day to be one day closer to being home with you. May we live each day watching for the return of the one who promised, if I go and prepare a place for you. I don't mean for that place, that room to be empty. I will come back for you so that you may be with me in my father's house. Jesus, I thank you for such a wonderful hope. And I pray that through the working of the Holy Spirit, it will be so deeply real, so deeply comforting and stabilizing, and so rich in giving hope to each one of your children. In your precious name I pray, amen. <music>